electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Just as important as the jump in bond yields this week is the question of why this is happening. For good reasons, like better economic growth, or for bad ones, like too much supply and central banks losing control. We'll look at what's been driving these moves and where you can find the best value right now. Plus, some major earnings drama. Yes, shares of Palo Alto have dropped 17% since their unorthodox decision to hold their earnings call today, a Friday, after the market close. Dan Ives warns it's a PR disaster, but our analyst calls it a super fun summer Friday. He's not worried. He has a buy on the stock. He sees 30% upside from here. He joins us to make his case. And one big-name investor drastically upped his stake in one high-profile stock. But our guest is not following his lead and says you shouldn't either. A special three bales and a buy 13F edition is coming your way. First, though, let's start with these markets. And we kind of have a turnaround depending on where you look, Dom. Yes, it's been a momentum shift. Now, it hasn't been dramatic, but it's still. We're seeing maybe near the highs of the session right now, Kelly. (laughs) To that point, I want to give you an idea of where the range is right now. Because the Dow Industrials are up 23 points just about flat on the session. It may not seem like a lot. The S&P 500 is down six points or about two-tenths of 1% at 4,363. But here's the thing. At the lows of the session, we were down 35 points. We were actually up two at the highs. So we're kind of a little bit more towards that upper end of the trading range so far today, trying at least to recover a little bit from those steeper losses that we saw yesterday in the S&P and the NASDAQ specifically. The NASDAQ composite, speaking of 13,262, down 53 points or about one half of 1%. That's the current state of play from the macro perspective. One place to keep a close eye on amid that bond carnage that we've seen on the Treasury side of things, pushing prices down and yields higher over the last week, is what's been happening to many of the regional banks. Remember the ones during the crisis earlier this year? We had some problems with mark-to-market accounting and some of the losses and asset values that have led to distress in some of these banks. Well, if you look at the rising rates and falling prices for bonds, they're having that similar kind of effect on some of these regional lenders right now. Zion's Bancorp, one of the bigger laggards in the S&P over the last week, down 10%. Comerica, similar percentage decline, and same with Truist Financial. So watch that regional bank trade roll out, just something to keep a close eye on with rates. And then one other place that's been an underperformer over the last week has been in shares of Tesla, which is down another 2% after a drop yesterday alongside the broader market. $215 a share right now. We're on a six-day losing streak that has seen us now drop from the highs earlier this year, roughly 28% below those levels. So again, keep an eye on Tesla amid a new round of price cuts for electric vehicles in China. Competitors may be losing some ground there. The entire EV market, Morgan Stanley, as Adam Jonas says, There could be an interesting development here with regard to what the dynamic is, Kelly, for supply and demand for EVs in China. Price wars may be looming. Tesla shares, watch those. I'll send things back over to you. Oh, very interesting. 
Dom, thanks very much. Well, investors are facing a big chicken or the egg question in the bond market, asking whether the recent surge in yields is growth driven or more a reflection of massive Treasury supply. The 10 year yield hovering near its highest level since back in 2007, just before the great financial crisis hit and ushered in a decade plus of zero rates. So should we expect yields to stay high now or not? And what exactly is moving the bond market? Steve Leisman joins us now. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kelly, yeah, the recent sharp increase in bond yields, mostly most people peg it to the Fitch downgrade on August 1 and huge amounts of supply coming from the Treasury. But I've spoken to several top fixed income managers, uh, and they said there's a lot more at play here. It's not clear the move is over yet as well, meaning more potential pressure could be coming on stocks. Here's what we call the bond voyage or the bond voyage. Fitch downgrade was a, is a big player there. Massive new supply, a bigger player. But then also better economic data and some strains on the demand side from Chinese and Japanese flows. Jay Barry, he's co-head of U.S. fixed income at J.P. Morgan. He adds to the list short-term issues like lousy August liquidity and investors being offsides in their positioning when we had those surprise announcements of all that supply. But the long-term issue could be that banks, central banks, and foreigners are not as big in the market as they have been. Barry says, in a world where budget deficits are increasing, treasuries will have to be underwritten by a more price-sensitive investor, which is why we are calling, at J.P. Morgan that is, for a steeper yield curve in the second half of the year. Rick Reeder from BlackRock says, it's just hard to go in and buy the long end of the treasury with all that risk when the short end is paying 5% and higher. When it's more clear, he says, that the Fed is closer to easing, there will be a greater demand for duration, but we clearly aren't there yet. All that said, one big-time bond investor I spoke with said, a 425 10-year, it makes fundamental sense. You figure a 225 to a 250 inflation rate, a 2% real yield. It's only high if you're under the mistaken impression we're going back to those 2 or 3% 10-year yields of the QE and zero lower bound world. And Kelly, he says we're well beyond that now. All right, that's what a lot of people think. Uh, Steve, stay with us. My next guest says those rising bond yields are increasing the likelihood of a recession, possibly as soon as the fourth quarter. But she warns the worst thing the Fed can do is stimulate further. Let's bring in Nancy Lazar, chief global economist at Piper Sandler. Great to have you here, Nancy. Welcome. Hi, thanks for asking. So we're, we're kind of like, I don't want to jump ahead, but I do like that little tease. So, so talk first of all about what is the risk from higher bond yields here? Because right now everyone seems to think, oh, the economy can clearly handle it. You know, Atlanta Fed says GDP is going to be, you know, 13 percent this quarter or whatever the number is now. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty high. The um, I just think that you have a curse of the leading indicators. It's not just bond yields. The Fed has obviously tightened very aggressively and bond yields are increasing. You've had the biggest increase in the 10-year yield uh, on a three-year basis since the early 1980s. So we've had a very, very significant increase in yields. But because the economy hasn't hit a wall yet, there's a general perception that therefore it won't slow. But we do a lot of modeling. We just look at a lot of data. And our bottom line is it's, it's the lagged effect of both the Fed raising rates dramatically and uh, uh, mortgage rates, uh, Treasury yields now also increasing significantly again, uh, they will uh, further slow economic activity. Oh, that's a key point. We have already seen a slowdown in the economy. Why has the PMI dropped below, uh, clearly below 50? Why have employment gains slowed? Why has GDP slowed? Because the lag effects of the Fed tightening cycle is starting to creep into the economy, and our work tells us the bullseye will be the fourth quarter and or 
uh, into the first quarter of 2024. But for now, we're sticking with the fourth quarter as far as when the uh, when the recession will start. And right. then you have to add to that, banks are tightening lending standards very aggressively. It always works. Uh, but again, the curves of the leading indicators, uh, there's a view that it hasn't happened, hit the economy yet, and therefore it won't. As opposed to therefore, well, let me, not that you're in the business of giving investment advice, Nancy, but under your quite plausible scenario here, you'd think, well, this doesn't feel like a scenario day by day in which yields would be pushing to new highs. So what do you think that's all about? Well, uh, Steve, I was surprised you didn't mention some of these huge wage increases that we've been seeing out of uh, many, many of the unions that we're getting from the airlines, uh, starting back actually with the uh, rail workers uh, last fall, uh, the airline industry that were on the cusp of potential uh, very, very tough negotiations with the UAW. They're asking for 40% increase um, over four years, 10%. Um, I started in the business when, when you were finally uh, obviously killing inflation in the early 1980s. I've never seen a wage Wage increases as much as we've seen. And there's like a contagion. Federal Express pilots uh, um, rejected a 30% pay increase over four years because of the UAL and American Airline wage settlement. So I think sticky inflation um, is not appreciated uh, as also another reason why bond yields have moved moved higher. And now yeah. mortgage rates are clearly over 7%. And well, uh, housing is going to have another tumble. It's almost like we should start having you guys uh, predict the misery index. Because un under Nancy's forecast, we have both rising unemployment and rising inflation, Steve, which is uh, not a very pretty scenario. And so there's at least three or four plausible different paths people can lay out here. Uh, and I'm just curious, her, her points about wages are well taken. Um, the wage data, obviously, is probably the most closely followed data set if people try to figure out what the long-term inflation pace will settle out to be. Yeah, I mean, Nancy's idea here, I'm sorry, did, uh, Nancy's idea here is, is, is the scenario uh, that really incorporates the idea of lags to the economy, which is that we haven't seen the effects yet. I will say there's another side to this which has suggested that the lags in the economy are... Um, are lessened now than they used to be. And we've seen a lot of it already. There are guys on the Fed who believes that, guys like Governor Chris Waller, who say it's in the market, it's in the economy already. Um, I will sort of counter that and side a little bit more with Nancy, which is that as these rates rise and pervade the economy, it feels more and more like there's less place to hide. It was one thing when you had like a 6 or a 7% mortgage rate or a, or sorry, a 5 or 6% mortgage rate. Now that there's 7, there's like you can't call up another bank and find a somewhat lower rate someplace. That seems to be more pervasive right now. I have no, no doubt that there are drags, but I will say on the other side of that, I would say we've had very low unemployment. And there will be an effect on the unemployment rate. I just don't think that in this world where there's such a premium on labor, which is what's driving those wage gains, that you're going to see uh, tremendous uh, increases in unemployment and a recession. Nancy? It's not unusual. I went back and looked at the data. We have a lot of models, but I went back and looked at the unemployment rate. And on average, it takes roughly two years for the beginning of a Fed tightening cycle 
to when unemployment rate uh, unemployment rate actually increases. We are not yet um, out of the woods when it comes to potentially an increase in the unemployment rate. We think it starts in the fourth quarter. It's already stabilized. We think it starts in the fourth quarter. Um, and quite frankly, these wage increases uh, are going to put even more and more pressure on profit margins, and that snowballs into even weaker employment. So we're not uh, out of the woods. You have to go back and look carefully, which we did. Um, and, and, and it also is a process for the Fed tightening cycle to work its way through the system. Corporate revenues, let's talk nominal revenues, have already slowed. Real revenues, a lot of these revenues are being bolstered by price increases. Just look at the staples industry. Um, as the Fed is successful in squeezing uh, out inflation, um, revenues are starting to deteriorate. And it takes roughly a year after revenues uh, to deteriorate for companies to go, uh-oh, I really have to take uh, cost-cutting measures and uh, yeah. start to reduce employment. The only thing I would say as a coda there, Nancy, is everything you're laying out to me sounds like a world in which inflation is going down. I just don't see how it's – we might get 40 percent wage negotiations now, but there's no way in a year or two we're going to face the same thing in the, you know, as things soften like you're describing. I agree. The word I'm using is sticky. Uh, we don't think weight inflation, we don't think core CPI accelerates from here. We think it's sticky and it's sticky because of these wage increases. But I agree with you a thousand percent. We think we need a recession, uh, i.e. we need an increase in the unemployment rate to really see a sustained shift down in inflation. And, and our forecast is we're going to get it, but okay. it will be painful for those companies that have depended upon these price increases to bolster their their, their revenues. 60% odds by Q4, 70% by the first half. Uh, real quick final word, Steve. Yeah, I just add that um, if you read what Powell said last year and read what's in the, the minutes last year, Jackson Hole, I mean, and read what was just in the minutes this week, the Fed itself believes that you need a period of below trend growth in order to vanquish inflation. We certainly haven't got that. We're not headed... Uh, um, True. There this quarter, uh, just to correct you, Kelly, it was five percent on the. Um, I wasn't Atlanta it like Fed seven. Now, did, I thought I saw six something. I don't know. Did, did they did they ratchet Maybe up not. again? That's, Maybe that's I probably how it recent. felt to me. I but, think but, I'm, I'm just uh, projecting how it felt. Yeah. <laughs> as, as you know from as you know from my work, this far out, it is overly optimistic by at least two by around two percentage points. But in, in, in any event, uh, this is one of the big questions for. Uh, I'll be asking next week in Jackson Hole is is how satisfied is the Fed with an economy that for the last four quarters since they last joined at, at Jackson Hole with an economy that's running at or above potential? Great and Will point. that be enough to bring down inflation? Right. They, if they sort of adhere to their own projection of what needs to happen, we're not there. 5.8 is what they have right. for Q3, the Atlanta Fed. We'll see if it sticks. Steve Leisman, Nancy Lazar, great to have you on, Nancy. Thanks so much for your time to both of you. We appreciate it. And a very big week coming. Steve, rest up. Uh, next week is going to be a very busy one. It's Jackson Hole. Uh, Steve will be out there interviewing Philly Fed President Patrick Harker on Thursday, among others. And of course, we look forward to Chair Powell's speech. Now let's shift to China, where the country's central bank has been stepping up support for its currency this week as the yuan falls to its lowest level against the U.S. dollar since 2007. It comes as some are even fearing a Lehman moment in the country's financial system. The fundamentals look worse and worse. Earlier this week, the country stopped releasing youth unemployment figures, announced a second rate cut in three months. Meantime, Chinese property giant Evergrande filing for Chapter 15 bankruptcy protection in a U.S. court last night as the property sector remains a primary concern. But my next guest says, take a deep breath. 
exhale. The concerns are all a bit overstated. For more, let's bring in Nicholas Lardy, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. All right, Nicholas, welcome. And um, give me some context here. What, what's your reaction when you see things like China heading into a possible Lehman moment here? Well, I, I think it's a bit overdone. They had, uh, you know, 6.3% growth uh, in the second quarter. It's uh, and I think I think the economy is doing reasonably well. They have some difficulties coming out of the COVID recession, but there are a lot of positives here. Imports are growing much more strongly than they were a year ago, which suggests uh, underlying demand is uh, bigger than a lot of people are saying. Uh, people are talking about deflation, but if you strip out strip out food prices. Uh, uh, consumer price inflation in July was actually up at a substantially higher rate uh, than in June. So a lot of the things that our people are pointing to could develop, but I think at the moment uh, it's premature to think that that uh, a Lehman moment is around the corner. Yeah. You know, the bankrupt property company, they started defaulting on their bonds two years ago. This is, uh, you know, this is old news. It's nothing, it's nothing new. They've had a significant property correction uh, for uh more than two years now, it has slowed down the economy, but I don't think it's going to collapse uh, the so financials. Let me show, I, I always feel like the currency is a little bit of an, of an objective judge or arbiter of this situation, and certainly in countries like Russia and Argentina, that's been especially true lately. But if we can show China's currency chart over maybe the past 15 years or so, what we're seeing today does look like an important move towards that trend. So there it is, 7.3. So we're not quite back to where we were in the mid-2000s. Obviously, that was a different story, but we're starting to break out of this recent range. And again, flip this around, it means it's weakening. They have to intervene there. They seem to be stepping up. You know, if every if everything's better and fine, and as you're describing, wouldn't the currency be a little bit more calm right now? Well, if I, I think we need to get away from looking at the rate against the dollar. If you look against a basket of currencies, uh, the RMB has not changed very much. Um, so is, is this RMB weakness or is it dollar strength? I think it's, a, it's mostly dollar strength, not RMB weakness. It's not their Chinese currency is not weakening on a trade weighted basis. So then if it's not weakening on a trade weighted basis, is the argument that you're making that in six months time, we're going to look at this and say the deflation wasn't as bad as we feared. You know, the imports were better than expected. The currency was magnified by U.S. dollar strength. And then those who last hour uh, were saying that they wanted to, for instance, buy Alibaba because they think a major economic stimulus or relief package is coming. Well, based on what you're arguing, then we shouldn't expect anything like that to come down the pike. I, I think a major stimulus is very unlikely. We've had a couple of modest interest rate cuts, but they're quite modest. Um, China is sticking to the plan that they adopted back in 2017, and that was to try to slow the growth of debt. Uh, they became convinced that, you know, as debt to GDP and from the corporate and private uh, sector, the households and the government was, you know, closing in on 300 percent that that was not a model that could be sustained. And they have slowed down the growth of credit quite substantially uh, since then. Uh, some of it's uh, less lending to property, which has led to the property correction. But I think they have taken substantial steps to reduce financial risk in the, in the system overall. Finally, then, because it does relate back to some of the major holdings people have in companies like Alibaba and others, 
Do you think the government's crackdown on those firms is largely over? And what do you think their plans are in terms of supporting either tacitly or explicitly their their growth and, and their sort of earnings hopes for the next couple of years? Well, I think they have in place now a more regularized, normalized regulatory environment. That was the original goal, uh, although it was implemented in a very clumsy manner that had very high costs uh, for Alibaba and other companies like them. But we're now seeing substantial recovery of earnings in those companies well into double digits. And I think that's likely to continue. I don't think they're going to return to the high level of profitability that they had in the totally unregulated uh, period, in the pre-COVID period, but I think they will strengthen. They're already substantially stepping up their hiring. Uh, I think their investment plans will uh, stabilize and increase, and that will be an additional source of growth going forward. All right, Nicholas Lardy, glass half full. We needed that, I think, uh, on this Friday. Appreciate your time today. Okay, thank you, Kelly. Check back in soon. Coming up, the case for T-Bill and Chill. Why buy stocks when you can get 5% risk-free? Our next guest says that's the number one question he's getting from clients. We'll tell you how he's advising them and how rare it is for stocks to actually beat T-Bills. Plus, would you bet against Buffett, Burry, or Tepper? Our trader has three bold calls based on their latest filings, and the names he's selling might surprise you. We've got that contrarian take coming up. And as we head to break, here's a quick check on the markets. Dow is fluttering between gains and losses. Down eight right now. S&P's down nine to 43.60. The Nasdaq's down a half a percent. The Russell, which had uh, breached its 200 day, is now positive. And the 10-year note backing off 430, below 424 at the moment. We're back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The 10-year yield making headlines this week as it hit 4.3%, making the first time in 15 years you could get a yield that high. Even on the shorter end of things, things are higher. The six-month yield, 5.5%. Why bother with stocks or other risky investments when you can pick up 5% yields risk-free? My next guest says that's the single most asked question he's getting from clients these days. So what does he tell them? Joining me now is Ben Kirby, Thornburg Investments co-head of investments. Uh, but Ben, before we get your answer, let's bring in our own Bob Bassani. Bob, stocks are actually way outperforming bonds so far this year. Yeah, it's not even close right now, Kelly. The S&P is handily beating bonds this year, even uh, with two-year Treasury yields near 5%, 10 years near 4%. 
at this point. So really not even close. But there's a fascinating study that's just been published recently uh, that looks at the global stock market returns. I have never seen a study this big. They looked at 64,000 stocks in a 30-year period uh, from 1990 to 2020. And it is quite amazing the conclusions that they come to. Number one is very few companies actually account for the majority of the gains that are out there. So this is an amazing number. Five companies account for 10% of all the global stock market wealth created in the last 30 years. Five companies account for 10%. Wealth meaning market capitalization. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Tencent. That's a Chinese company here. 44% of U.S. stocks, there were 17,000 U.S. stocks studied, 44% of them outperformed U.S. Treasury bills, only 44%. So the majority actually did not outperform Treasury bills. So there's a couple of things you could conclude here, Kelly. Number one, the authors conclude very few investors really possess the ability to pick stocks over a long period. And number two, the key to the success in owning stocks is owning a broad diversified portfolio. And they recommend the best way to do that is using index fund. The final thing is they studied 17,000 U.S. stocks. There aren't 17,000 U.S. stocks in the market right now. There's less than 5,000. Most of them go away. They fail over the 30-year period or they're bought out. So the S&P looks like it goes up 10% a year. It does on average, including dividends, but it's a biased index because it in they keep the winners in and they throw the losers out. And the market capitalization means the winners have more, the bigger winners have more influence over the smaller companies that are in there. So yes, the stock market indexes tend to go up, but the average stock actually has a very tough time of it. Kelly? That's fascinating. I didn't expect Tencent to be on that top five list either. That, uh, that was an interesting one. All right, Ben, so all of this said, people are, and I think most people intuitively know stocks beat bonds, but for the first time they're thinking, well, 5% risk-free in bonds ain't bad. So what are you hearing and what are you recommending? Uh, hi. So, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So for sure, cash at 5% is uh, better competition with stocks than it was when cash was at 0%. That said, over the long term, stocks do outperform uh, uh, less risky assets. So I, I co-manage a portfolio called the Investment Income Builder. It's a portfolio that's returned 9.5% uh, over the last 20 years, of which 5% is income, and another 45 or 5% comes from growth over time. So if you want to look at over a very long time period, stocks tend to go up 8 years out of 10, and cash or money market or something very much like that is actually the riskiest thing you can do from a long-term total return perspective. Sure from trying to achieve your financial goals. So it's basically just saying to people, and, and we've seen this, and, and sort of what Bob's talking about makes me think about it too, this idea that you know, if you miss the biggest days, you might, you've missed the whole thing. Like it's time in the, the bigger risk is kind of missing it and, and being on the sidelines. What about people who are like, I more or less am fully invested or I'm comfortable where I'm invested, but I'm not sure about sort of adding to that position, um, you know, or, or why not have, you know, a, a position in treasuries? And I think a lot of people, too, are thinking that the market might weaken. You yourself sound like you think the recession is only delayed, not canceled. So some of this cash is just being opportunistic. I think that's right. I think you want to have a barbell portfolio. So you want to have some, some, some cash and some less risky assets for when the market does give you an opportunity to buy more. But you also always want to have some exposure to those assets that can grow over time. So being active stock pickers, um, active portfolio managers, active bond managers, 
uh, we actually think that we can outperform the market over time. So as, as Bob was, was alluding to, many stocks uh, have zero return over time. And, and most of, of the return comes from a relatively select few. So as active managers, our goal, our job is to put the portfolios in position to have exposure uh, to those better investments. What does it mean for the market, Bob? I'm just pulling up some of the stats I've been collecting. For instance, money market assets hit a record of $5.6 trillion. This is from ICI uh, last week. So is that, Bob, considered a bullish sign for the market because that's all on the sidelines, maybe waiting for an opportunity? Or are we seeing headwinds for the stock market that we haven't had in 15 or maybe 30 years? Both of the things you just said are correct. Yes, it's cash on the sidelines and could come into the market, so it's potentially bullish. But yes, and I think it's wonderful that bonds are finally, look, below 1%, giving the government your money for 10 years below 1% is crazy. That's what was an anomaly. What we're in now is more normal. If you look at the historic return, look at a 10-year yield, it's much more common to be in the 4 to 6% range than it ever was to be in the 1% range. Same with, with mortgage rates. Nobody's happy with mortgages at 7%, but it was 3% mortgages that were the anomaly. They never were 3% before. <laughs> That's extremely unusual. Where we're in now is more normal. So I think it's wonderful that Bonds are, how, are pro providing some competition. Uh, I, it's not great for stocks. The equity risk premium for owning stocks is terrible right now. That's one of the reasons the market might be having a little problem right now. But I'm, I'm much more comfortable with savers like my mother getting 4% on her, her or 5% on her one-year yield, one-year uh, bank CD, than uh, getting nothing in her bank savings account. So uh, I, I think this is all a positive development, even though it's serious competition for stocks. Ben, I'll give you the last word, and maybe it's tactical. Um, there, there are some names in here. I see TSMC, um, some individual names. Maybe it's not NVIDIA, but uh, it entice the people who are like, come on, I'm, I'm no, no, I, entice them in. So look, there's still a lot of value in the market. There, there's individual stocks that have certainly run a lot. Their valuations are high. Bob alludes to a low equity risk premium. That's true for the market as a whole. But look, take out some of those stocks that have outperformed very strongly. There's still a lot of value in the market. So a company like Taiwan Semiconductor, there's some geopolitical risk there. But this is an important company in the world. Uh, they have free cash flow. They have growth. The valuation is attractive. We think it's just going to be a much bigger company over the next five and ten years. It's going to grow a lot faster than that five percent cash will. All right, and there's a couple of the other, you know, Charles Schwab for the brave one, CME Group, uh, Orange, a, a broad mix there. Thank you both very much for your time today, Ben Kirby and our very own Bob Pisani. And don't miss a CNBC special, Taking Stock, tonight at 6 p.m. with Mike Santoli and Josh Brown. We've been promised a debate, so I'm looking forward to it. Still ahead here on the show, Palo Alto is set to become the first S&P company in nearly three years to report results on a Friday afternoon. It has investors a little skittish. The shares are down 18% since that release date was announced. So what's the street expecting and how much does the timing really matter for reports? The answers from one analyst ahead here on The Exchange. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Four Proud Boys are facing up to 33 years in prison after being found guilty of seditious conspiracy for their actions during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Prosecutors also seeking a 20-year sentence for a fifth Proud Boy who was found guilty of assaulting and resisting officers during the attack. The sentencing hearings are set for the end of August. Residents in the capital of Canada's Northwest Territories rushed to evacuate their homes as wildfires in the region moved closer to the city. Strong northern winds have officials worried that the flames could be pushed toward the only highway leading away from the fire. Ten planes left the capital Thursday and the region's Department of Municipal and Community Affairs is aiming for 22 more flights departing today. And a Canadian minister is demanding that Meta lift its ban on Canadian news from its platforms to allow people access uh, to access information about the wildfires. The company started blocking news on Facebook and Instagram after the country passed a law requiring Internet giants to pay news outlets for content. Canada's transport minister said the ban is unacceptable. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thanks. I'll see you shortly. Coming up, a special 13F edition of Three Bales and a Buy, including this name that happens to be David Tepper's top holding. If you know it, tweet me at KellyCNBC. See if you can guess what our trader's doing with it. We'll reveal it after the break with a Dow up 14 points. Welcome back. The moves of the biggest fund managers in the world were revealed in filings this week. So we saw how Warren Buffett, David Tepper and others are playing the market. And we're going to trade those moves in a special 13F edition. And we're calling it this time three bales and just one buy. Joining me now is Lee Munson, Portfolio Wealth Advisors President and CEO. He has our trades. Lee, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. We're going to start, and good job, everyone who guessed this. It wasn't too hard of a mystery chart. We're going to start with NVIDIA. Uh, is the trade still Teflon? Appaloosa's David Tepper made it his top holding last quarter, increasing his stake nearly sevenfold to over $400 million. He added some other semi-names, too. It is about 10% off the year highs, but still on a monster run. Why are you bailing here? You know, I'm bailing for a few reasons. Even if you look at the math, and you look at the valuations, if we presume this is going to be a $325, $350 million market in less than 10 years, and NVIDIA controls it all, you're still around, even at this price, you're at a 95th percentile of valuation going forward, right? So, and I'm looking at the 95th percentile based on NVIDIA being an apex predator. But that's not just, it's not just the valuations, because we know they're going to bring it. Boundary is not an insignificant risk. You've got Taiwan Semiconductor that's making all these chips for NVIDIA. They're in Taiwan, right? If you listen to Taiwan Semi's uh, quarterly calls, they've already said, next year, we don't really know how much of this stuff we're going to be able to build for NVIDIA. It's still unclear. And then look at the news from Wednesday. Intel hit the brakes again on their turnaround story that never does. Why? Because they were trying to do a, they were trying to acquire a tiny little boundary out in Israel. And because of U.S.-China relations, that deal fell through. So I think going forward, getting the stuff to market is going to be important. And by the way, if you're really into the math, people should look up the stock-based compensation of NVIDIA, really understand what the real costs are. That free cash flow starts to dwindle quickly. 
Well, uh, certainly they would probably have earned themselves a lot of lumping NVIDIA in with Intel is not. You know, if you want to go there, you can go there. I, I, bailing on NVIDIA after a move like this. Listen, it's probably uh, probably prudent practice at this point, but it's still a controversial one. Next one might not be quite so controversially, uh, but let's talk about it anyway. Expedia, which big short investor Michael Burry just added to his portfolio last quarter. It's been down 19 percent after earnings two weeks ago. It's worst day since the pandemic lows in March 2020. This one, why you not a fan. Well, listen, I love Michael Burry. We all, we all love him. I'm, I'm a value player at heart. And so all this tells us is that officially, now that Burry's involved, it's not a tech company, it's a travel agency. So they couldn't, they couldn't make the earnings work last quarter, okay? They had everything, you know, all this the wind underneath their sails. But they've got this thing called the One Key Initiative, if you really kind of dig down in this thing. What, what they're trying to do is they're trying to tie together these very different brands that they have, you know, Verbo and Expedia and hotels, all this stuff. And they're going to offer a whopping 2% discount to try to get that brand loyalty. Here's the issue. You're competing against the points economy. I mean, the credit card points economy. Airlines, it's a lucrative thing. They're going to keep pushing it. The banks, they love it. And as more people are traveling, they're starting to get wise because everybody's starting to travel a lot more in a short period of time. They're learning what business travelers know. That if you like a hotel, you book direct. Any Google search will tell you it's going to be the same price as Expedia these days. And then you offer they offer perks like free Wi-Fi, late checkout. They don't nickel and dime you. So I think Expedia is one of those things where it's gone from a big Silicon Valley love fest down to kind of a mature company that's going to have loyalty. Why would they do one key if they weren't concerned about brand loyalty? I think that this is going to be a headwind going forward. I would rather look at this when the valuation is much lower, close to debt. Yeah, and it is interesting to watch how well booking is doing by comparison. A lot of industries seem to have these kind of winner and loser tales this quarter. Uh, our last one is really in the news this week in particular, CVS. And that was also another ad from Michael Burry last quarter. It's pairing some losses after posting its worst day since October yesterday. On that news, it's lost its spot as California's top pharmacy benefit manager to Amazon and to Mark Cuban's cost plus. Um, is that why you're out? The stock's down, geez, about 28 percent year to date. I mean, at some price, I'll buy anything, right? Like I said, I'm a value player at heart. Um, I'm not sure that most investors know that CVS isn't really just a, you know, a local like little drugstore like Walgreens. Right. Half of their revenues are coming from this. So when Cuban has his passion project of revolutionizing, you know, the pharmacy benefits management business, he really means he he aims to destroy it. And he just drew first blood in California. I think this is going to be a trend going forward. And it's not that. People don't need a local pharmacist. You know, I have a lot of, you know, retired clients. They have complex stuff. They need to see somebody about that. But when it's half your revenues, you have to start thinking about how much do I want to buy for this. Another thing we miss, Oak Street. They just bought this thing back in May. They're going to be slashing thousands of jobs. Why? Because it's a tough competitive business. You know, for the, you know, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, every time I meet an entrepreneurial doctor, they want to immediately pitch me on their urgent care business that they want to do. Um, in the last year or so, no doctors want to get into that business because I don't know where you are, you know, out in the tri-state area, but out in New Mexico, there's urgent cares everywhere. The hospitals are yeah. getting into the business, uh, entrepreneurial doctors, and now Oak Street. So I think they're really linked to that game. So it, it's not that CVS is going to go away, but this is a story about half their revenues are really at risk. I would wait and see. I'd love to buy this at uh, a much, I'd like to buy it when people think it's game over.
Yep. All right. So then move on from the bales. There is a buy in here uh, and you're following Warren. But I, when I saw this headline about Berkshire in the home builders, I was a little surprised. OK, let's uh, let's lay it out. Buffett or Berkshire bought uh, more than seven hundred million dollars of D.R. Horton last quarter and other home buyers. Um, of course, as we know, listen, I'm not going to say this, but I'm going to say it. The time to buy them, Lee, was a year ago when they were trading at three X. But that's not to say, listen, they bought Apple way after, you know, and they've done, they've crushed it. So, Dr. Horton, why do you think now is a good time for, for you, for them, for anyone to, to be a buyer? So, you're absolutely right. I mean, you and I were talking about last summer, and I said, oh, you might want to dip your toe in home building. Yes. It seems so scary. I can't believe that trade worked out. Even <laughs> I was like, I don't know about it. I, I don't know. I think I'm early. I was not early. We've got 30% of all new or all home sales coming from new construction. That's over twice the historical norm. Now we can say that it's a lock-in effect. You know, nobody wants to lose their three and a half percent mortgage. That's not really what's going on. What's going on is the ratio of adult children living at home is plummeting like a spack right now. And that's not simply a COVID thing. It's that millennials were staying in school longer. They were staying at home longer, but eventually, they all get married, they have kids, and they become their parents. We just don't have enough units. So the reason DR Horton versus the other group versus saying buy the home builder ETF, which would sort of be my first thing. If you're going to go in now on a big secular move going forward, you got to be with the 800-pound gorilla because the one thing we need is as many units as possible. So yeah. if you go with the big players, there's safety and size. I agree. The move is, is, has been made, but I think it's now time to consolidate up into the big, big player and let all the small guys fight for the rest. So I don't think it's without risk, but it's the only thing I really like. And it is funny because traders always kind of, we always try to kind of goof on Warren Buffett because oftentimes they'll, we'll, we'll get the 13F and we'll right. say, didn't that, didn't that already move? We said the same thing about Apple years ago. A hundred percent. Lee, thanks for your time today. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Lee Munson. Still ahead, classic cl classic cars, she said, not cars, uh, but they are flashing warning signs about the high-end consumer. Robert Frank is live in Pebble Beach with more. <laughs> He's always, always in a nice ride, Robert. Well, Kelly, it's the Super Bowl of supercars, the Coachella of classics, more than 80,000 collectors and car fans pouring into Monterey. And we'll look at classic cars as investments and why the market may be showing some signs slowing down coming up after the break. Welcome back. It's kind of a Super Bowl for car collectors. This year's Pebble Beach car auction. It'll also be a big test of how healthy the high-end consumer is. Robert Frank is live with more. And there were some signs of cracks, you know, last year, Robert, but have things stabilized? Yeah, Kelly, a big test. And there are some signs of cracks in the market. Over 800 cars scheduled across the auction block this weekend, over $420 million of sales. But that would be down from last year. It's the first time we've seen that in a while. If you look year-to-date, classic car prices are down 7%. It is the worst-performing collectible asset class right now. You compare that to, let's say, art, which is up 12%. But we talked to one well-known seller who collects as many cars as he did World Series home runs. And he said demand remains strong. Demand for the great cars 
and, and the special and unique cars are still going to be attractive to the person that can afford them. And certainly the wealth has continued to grow. The interest is, is crazy. Cue me. And guys, uh, if you look at the most expensive car that's expected to sell this weekend, it is a Ferrari over at Bonham, scheduled to sell for about $40 million. That's a 1967 race car. A lot of eyes on Porsches like this one. The Porsche market just went crazy during the pandemic and afterward, prices nearly 40, 50%. This Speedster from 1956 Kelly expected to sell for $350,000. And tonight we're going to look at a different brand, Ferrari. We're going to have an exclusive interview with the CEO of Ferrari, Benedetto Vigna, tonight at 7.30 on Last Call. Going to ask him about Ferrari prices, which have also gone crazy, and also what's, what he's seeing in the new car market and the high-end consumer. Kelly? One of the greatest stocks, uh, one of the greatest spin-outs. I mean, it's just been incredible. It's up there with LVMH, and uh, everyone wants to emulate their model, make one less car than the market needs. Robert, great stuff. It looks beautiful out there. Thanks for uh, your long day for you, Robert Frank. Still ahead, PR disaster or much ado about nothing? We'll look at Palo Alto's rare move to report on a Friday afternoon. That's coming up in a couple of hours, but we'll talk about it next. Welcome back. Palo Alto reports earnings this afternoon on a summer Friday after the market close. And while my next guest agrees it's unusual, he says the concerns are overblown. The stock's down almost 20 percent since this announcement. Uh, but our next guest has a buy rating and sees 30 percent upside from here. Joining me is Joseph Gallo. He's a software analyst at Jefferies. Joseph, welcome. So it's almost like they should have moved the date after all the, the you know, they've had two weeks to think about this and it's still tonight. Yeah, they have. Um, it's led to a lot of conspiracy theories. You know, we think that's overblown. A lot of people have been trying to say, hey, are they trying to hide something? If you think that, you just don't know Nikesh. You know, Nikesh always likes things out front and center um, and accountable. And so we think that part of the story is a little bit overblown. That said, Fortinet's results two weeks ago are the more concerning part. We think that what happened to them can absolutely happen to Palo Alto, and you'll see a little bit of digestion, which will be reflected in the guidance. Did you say Hewlett Packard's results? Look past the results. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Wait, which company's results were worrisome, did you say? Fortinet's. I, Fortinet. That would make a lot more sense. I'm thinking, wow, I didn't th think that they were uh, peers here. Okay, so they were sh uh, showing shares of Fortinet. And explain why you think that is such a, a, a yellow flag. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're competitors. They both sell hardware appliances. There's reasons why Palo Alto would be more insulated. They have a higher mix of software. But at the end of the day, the past two years, we've seen this tremendous surge in products. Um, just given that, you know, the COVID pandemic led to, you know, the Internet doubling overnight. Well, you needed more firewalls to support that. Palo Alto also went through a product refresh cycle. So you saw two years of 20 percent plus product growth. And then what's going to happen is now you're going to have some digestion. So that won't impact this fiscal fourth quarter's results. But at the end of the day, their one in three year targets are going to have to probably come lower. So you acknowledge that they've been through this kind of hangover period. What is the catalyst and the bull case for owning the shares here? Why not wait it out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we previewed being a little bit tactically cautious, right? But I think once we get past this reset, right, we view this as a speed bump, then investors can target the, you know, four and a half to five billion of free cash flow out in fiscal 26 and lock on. And this company will, over the next two to three years, drive towards 100 billion valuation. Yeah. And what would be the, you know, if, what would you have to hear today to sort of think, you know what, maybe there are deeper problems? I think that for there to be deeper problems, 
would have to hear something along the lines of, hey, this has been a primarily hardware-led sale, and we're not as comfortable selling software only, which we think Palo Alto is really good at selling just software. The problem is the channel might not be as um, capable. And so if we heard things along that lines, maybe we'd be a little bit more cautious. But at the end of the day, this is one of the better executing companies, better platforms positioned, whether you want hardware, software, cloud, and we think that over the next two to three years, it remains one of our favorite picks. All right. Well, I'm assuming uh, the analyst community is not a fan of Friday afternoon earnings calls. I, there's nothing I'd rather be doing tonight on a Friday in August than doing <laughs> earnings. All right. Maybe they'll start a trend. Joseph, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Joseph Gallo with Jefferies. Again, he has a buy 30% upside for Palo Alto. Jim Cramer will be speaking with Palo Alto CEO Nikesh Arora, who uh, you just heard mentioned, on Monday at 6 p.m. on Mad Money. That will be a good follow-up to whatever they say this evening. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.